Baseball fans, welcome to Rogers Center, home of your Toronto Blue Jays for Canada Day. As Teoscar Hernandez drills the first pitch of the bottom of the second into the seats and left. Winning today 11 to 4. Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters Arden Swelling here with Ben Nicholson Smith as always, and our producer is Christian Ryan. Ben, what's going on, man? Did you have a nice Canada Day? I did. It was it was different than the Canada days that I've experienced in recent years, just because I was not at the ballpark, and that's that's obviously in stark contrast to what we would normally be doing this uh, time in a in a regular year. Jay's always, of course, at home on Canada Day, and usually that leads to an afternoon of, of baseball. And so I can kind of think back to, you know, other memorable Canada days. You've got Kevin Pillar's catch in center field. And another deep fly ball. Castellanos deep left center. Pillar back. And he made the catch. Even Castellanos has to applaud the effort and the grab made by Kevin Pillar. Even growing up, I think I went to a couple Canada Day games, but this was totally different. No baseball in sight, basically just having the chance to relax a little bit, watch a few fireworks. But yeah, it was very different. I assume it was the same for you. Yeah, man, it like it hit me yesterday for the first time. Well, not for the first time, but like it did just hit me like how weird this year is. Because right, Canada Day, obviously big thing at Rogers Center every year. You got your red unis on, right? You get the big, massive Canadian flag in the outfield and military service personnel pregame ceremony you know the whole nine yards um and yeah that's where i've been on canada day for like the last i don't know eight years or something do you remember canada day last year ben do you remember what last year's canada day game was like oh man i'm trying to think here uh i don't think so jog my memory here what happened last year on canada day well, it was a real marquee matchup, my friend. It was Clayton Richard and Glenn Smarkman, baby. <laughs> okay, now I don't feel bad for not remembering. <laughs> I can't believe you deleted those files. Two teams that were 20 plus games under 500, just wow. going at it. Like two teams that, like in another sport, would have been playing to avoid relegation. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And probably <laughs> probably would not have succeeded in their attempts to not be relegated <laughs> with the way that that season unfolded for the Jays and Royals. But wow, I know I have zero recollection of that game. It's just disappeared from my memory. Isn't that funny? And it was just a year ago. And yeah, so yeah, that did like hit me yesterday as, you know, around 2, 3 p.m. When last year, like I'm sure we were both sitting in that left field press box and sweating in our suits and trying to think like, what are we going to write about these two miserable teams? And, you know, Clayton Richard versus Glenn Sparkman, which is great, by the way. Like we love our jobs and it's incredible that we get paid to watch sports and it's privileged. But yesterday... Around 2, 3 p.m., Ben, like I'm, you know, cracking my third beer of the afternoon <laughs> and I'm sitting outside in a in a tank top. I'm not in a suit. You know, I got my feet up and the sun shining and perfect breeze, not a care in the world. And I'm kind of looking around like, you know, this ain't so bad. No, I know. Like the, the summer holidays, like having, you know, May 2-4, August long weekend, Canada Day, those are usually baseball games. And, and obviously a lot of the time the Jays are at home for those Canada long weekends. And so... 
I, I think in in our jobs we just kind of forget that they exist. Like they're f- functionally speaking, they're just not holidays for us. So it just kind of disappears. And then being confronted with it is actually a very welcome reminder of what a summer long weekend can be like. It's actually it's pretty nice. Yeah, it's like is this how the rest of the world gets to spend their summer? <laughs> is this Weekends what everyone too? else right? Is this what everyone else is up to when we're at the ballpark? I can see the appeal of it. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's not. It doesn't take long to start seeing the appeal. Like you said, if you're if you're sitting outside, nice day like it was yesterday, cracking open a couple of beers, like that's a great way to go. We all miss baseball. Uh, might not have missed it that much yesterday, but we we do all miss baseball, and it is returning later this month. And training camps are beginning across MLB. Literally, as we sit here and talk to each other, Ben, here on Thursday, July second, by the weekend, I would expect that the vast majority of teams will be throwing baseballs to each other and pitchers and catchers will be throwing bullpens and all kinds of stuff's going to be going on. The Toronto Blue Jays are in an interesting position when it comes to that because they currently, as we sit here today, record this, do not know where summer camp is going to be, do not know where their regular season is going to be played, and do not know what to do this weekend. When they get to the other end of the intake process here at the beginning of training camps, Blue Jays players and staff, as things stand right now, really do not know where they're going to be on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Yeah, and that's been a really long period in limbo for this franchise. I mean, really, the the last few months could be considered a period of limbo, I think, for, for players, for staff. And that's been particularly intense in the last week or so because... This is the time that most major league players, 29 out of 30 teams, are reporting to their home stadiums and they're starting to get going for the season. And the Jays have just been waiting for this entire week. They haven't known. They haven't been able to make arrangements with their families. The Blue Jays themselves are waiting with a charter ready to go from Dunedin to Toronto. They have the government approvals. It's just a question of the quarantining and how that would work during the regular season. But there are tons of logistics to figure out right here. And really, you know, this was going to be an abbreviated spring training to begin with, right? They only had three weeks to work with. The longer this goes on, I mean, it does start to to impact the Blue Jays at a certain point because, you know, everything's packed up in their trucks. The players don't know exactly what's going to happen. It's nobody's fault necessarily. I think it's just a product of how many layers of government people have to to go through to get these approvals. But this is not good for the Jays in any way, shape, or form. Well, and on top of that, there are some health concerns at play right now as well, because the Blue Jays going through this intake process, which um, includes a, a questionnaire about your symptoms and, and possible exposure, and then temperature checks and saliva samples to test if you actually have COVID-19, um, blood samples to test for antibodies, which would indicate that you've had the virus. The Blue Jays are, are finding out a lot about which players are going to be available at the beginning of spring training and which players actually are going to have to enter self-quarantine and isolate away from the team for a period of time. And you would imagine that would impact things as you start up camp and try to prepare for a season because as we have said time and time again, there are going to be positive tests. This is going to happen. And we actually got an indication of that just before we started recording as uh, the Blue Jays announced that they had claimed Bravik Valera off waivers from the Padres and also invited Brian Baker, Patrick Kivlihan, and Josh Palacios to 
training camp, or at least they've added them to the player pool, and then from there they can go to kind of major league training or to the alternate site, taxi squad training. That would put the Blue Jays player pool up over 60, and the Blue Jays aren't going to announce that so-and-so has tested positive or this, that, and the other. But we can assume just because they have gone up over 60 men in that player pool that they have had some positive tests because moving a player onto the COVID-19 list is really the only way you could exceed that roster limitation, Ben. Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. I, I really do because these rosters have, have caps. You know, you can't roster 70 players on your 60, 60 man player pool. You can't do 62 unless there's a reason for it. So I do think that's a safe assumption. This is getting into the minutia of these transactions a little bit, but we did see today that the Blue Jays officially placed Elvis Luciano, Hector Perez, Brandon Drury, and Jonathan Davis on the injured list. So that might also figure into how these transactions are being calculated. It's at the best of times. I think these, you know, 60-day injured list rules can be a little bit confusing to your average fan or to your average player or coach even. And that's especially so now because we're not even used to how the logistics of these rosters work. But I, I do think it's still safe to say hey, if they're going over that limit, the Blue Jays were expecting tests. We know there have been positive tests within the organization. It's not unreasonable to connect some dots there. And it's not only players, of course. Um, you know, there's no injured list for staff or for coaches, but it is certainly possible that you would have coaches and staff testing positive as well. And then those individuals would have to be away from training camp for a period of time until they pass, you know, showed a couple of, of negative tests and were cleared by a physician to return. And we're decide, you know, it was determined that they are no longer a risk to spread the virus and to have somebody else contract it from them. So, you know, I would expect... It, we'll see if that happens for the Blue Jays, but I'd expect across MLB, you're going to have coaches and staff, front office personnel, you know, anybody who's trying to be a part of this organizational bubble that teams are trying to create are going to test positive, and that's going to put things in flux at the beginning of camp. So it's a lot of moving pieces, right? And, you know, where the Blue Jays play their regular season games, which seems to be a, a pretty big holdup right now with the federal government being pretty wary as they should be of the travel that would be involved and in bringing players in and out of the United States and going back and forth. Well, where you play the regular season games will have an impact, I'd feel, on where you actually hold training camp. Because would it make sense, if you were going to play your regular season games in Dunedin, would it make sense to fly up to Toronto for two and a half weeks and then fly back to Dunedin, like to move the entire organization like that. You know, if you're going to end up playing your regular season games in Dunedin, then you might as well just have training camp in Dunedin as well. So I think that's also contributing to the holdup here. I agree completely. I think when you're looking at the potential effort of moving all of this staff, moving this equipment, getting these approvals, they're not doing that just so they can train in Toronto for two and a half or three weeks. I mean, they're doing that with a view toward training here and then also having the regular season based out of Toronto. And in all of the information that I've been able to pick up around this, I've never really had the impression that there was a real possibility of training in Toronto and then playing your games in Florida. Because like you said, it just it doesn't make sense. So now they might have to train in Florida for a little period of time and then later get approval to base their regular season out of Toronto. That's one possibility that's been discussed, but I don't think that it would go the other way around. And I think for, for good reason too. 
Push is going to have to come to shove in in pretty short order here because uh, the regular season is set to begin on July 23rd or 24th, and uh, MLB needs a schedule, and to have that schedule, they're going to need to know where the Blue Jays are playing, and the Blue Jays themselves are going to need to know where they're playing, and their players and staffs are, are going to need to know. So I would anticipate by the time we record next week that we'll have a clear idea of where everything's going to play out. But uh, as we stand here right now, I mean, things are in flux and, and it's hard to comment on it much more than that. We do know at least who will be available to the Blue Jays in this regular season as they named 58 players to their player pool earlier this week or last weekend, I guess. And then uh, obviously I had a few more today, as, as we said. To me, Ben, it kind of breaks down into three tiers, the player pool. You got your first tier, which are kind of your your starters, like the, the 26 players that we envisioned would be on the team breaking from camp if there hadn't been a global pandemic. And then there is the depth tier, which are, you know, the players who probably would have populated AAA Buffalo's roster and would have been called upon throughout the season. So guys who are ready to step in to the majors and and pitch or, or you know, play a position. So that would, you know, be like your Jacob Wagus backs and your, um, you know, your Santiago Espinals and players like that. And that's kind of the second tier. And then the third tier are the developmental players. That's the developmental tier. So these are far away prospects. These are your Jordan Groshans and your Alec Manoas, Simeon Woods Richardson, Alejandro Kirk, players who are being brought to training camp or brought onto the player pool in order to further their development and in order to get some um, just useful repetitions in and to be around a competitive environment, but not players who are here to impact the big league club in 2020. Does that make sense to you, Ben? Yeah, I think it does. And for those last players, those prospects, maybe there's like an extreme pathway where they somehow end up impacting the major league team. But for the most part, I think you're right. It is about development. And, you know, when I start looking ahead to what the next couple of months look like for the Blue Jays and and really for their entire organization, it's pretty interesting to contemplate how all those groups will interact with each other because the major league team will be somewhere we assume in in Toronto if if the Blue Jays are able to get the the approvals that they're seeking and then you're going to have the secondary group the satellite team that will be based out of Buffalo and it's going to be interesting to try to manage keeping your Caleb Josephs and your Andy Burns your kind of these veteran guys in shape in case they're called up to the major league team and then balancing that as well with the need to develop some of these younger players who might have different needs on a day-to-day basis. There are different places in their own development curve. So whoever's running that that camp in Buffalo, I assume it'll be Gil Kim, although he, he is a major league coach right now. So maybe it'll be uh, someone else from their player development staff. But there are a lot of interesting kind of structural questions there as far as how do you you know, first of all, how do you prioritize the field space that you have, which is likely to be limited in, in Buffalo? And then secondly, how do you create competitive environments here that achieve the goal of keeping guys fresh and in shape, but also achieve the goal of developing these younger players? Oh, absolutely. And you could envision it being like quite a grind for some of those guys who are at that satellite camp for two months straight. 
And if you just had the same programming for them every day, if it was like, yep, you're going to show up and you're going to lift at 8 a.m. and then you're going to hit BP at 9 and then at 10, we're going to hit you some grounders. And then at 11, you're going to have lunch and, and the rest of the day is yours. If you just did that every single day, it would be so tedious and almost counterproductive because these guys aren't going to be allowed to leave their hotels. <laughs> like they're not going to be allowed to go out and like, you know, be part of society. Like they have to remain as sequestered as possible because there's always the chance that they're called up to the majors and then you can't have somebody they're going to be getting tested regularly and you can't have somebody bringing coronavirus up to the major league team so you could see that becoming quite a grind for these players so i do think it's going to be an interesting challenge for the organization and creating some programming that makes it interesting every day and makes it feel new and unique and challenging and gives players something to look forward to right like so that an alec manoa can like say hey i know on thursday like i am starting the you know sim intra squad game or something and i am facing player x y and z who are all going to be bringing their best against me and i am preparing for that and now i am like actually thinking about the scouting reports on those players and how I want to attack them. And I'm having a catcher meeting to prepare for that. Like, I think you have to try to design as close to game scenarios as you can. And also like just throw in some, some interesting random challenges or just some unique things that players can focus on and try to accomplish just to keep it fresh and keep them engaged and, you know, make it not as much of a a mental toil as it could potentially be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you think about the guys who are going to spend basically their entire summer there. They'll be in Buffalo. As you say, they're not going to be out in the way that they normally would be. So so their life away from the ballpark will be far less rich than, than it regularly would be. And their life at the ballpark has the chance to be really, really repetitive. You think about extended spring training and anytime I've heard people talk about extended spring it's not exactly with a lot of fondness you know those those aren't their (laughs) fondest memories in their professional baseball careers it can often be you know really repetitive and you know let's let's take the example of Caleb Joseph okay let's say Reese McGuire and Danny Jansen are up with the big league team and Caleb Joseph is down there catching bullpen session after bullpen session and trying to stay fresh trying to stay motivated and let's say that it's, you know, September the 15th, by which point he's been down there for two and a half months and the Blue Jays need a second catcher and it's time to call on him. You have to balance keeping him fresh, his duties with the pitchers, which there are going to be a lot of pitchers down there who want to get their work in. And also just mentally, I mean, it's not just the physical toll that catchers deal with or, or players in general, but you have to have these guys stay mentally sharp because what if the Blue Jays are four games out of a wild card on, on September 15th and, you know, those two weeks down the stretch really matter. You want to have the guys that you're calling on to replace someone for an injury or for COVID or whatever the case, you need them to be fresh. Yeah, you know, and you just want to even incorporate some of the uh, the team building and camaraderie aspects of it as well. Like I might even like I'm just spitballing here, like throw in the occasional like outfield soccer game into that, you know, or like just have some like totally non baseball activities that guys can do just to get them out of that grind that you're referencing and just to get them out of that like tedious routine because I do think that the Blue Jays see some benefit in having guys like Roshans and Manoa and Woods Richardson and Kirk all together in the same place trained together day to day and kind of get to know each other and and building some of that you know there's some of these buzzwords that some of us roll our eyes at in terms of you know culture and chemistry and things like this 
doing, you know, just, just putting some of those pieces in place. Like we've seen the Blue Jays do all kinds of interesting developmental things during off seasons where, you know, they've had players go and work with Canadian Arms Forces at Petawawa or work with U.S. Army Rangers. We've seen, you know, groups of young Blue Jays prospects put on a plane to fly out to Latin America to, you know, go see the complex in the Dominican or go see how some of their Latin American teammates grow up and what life is like for them at home just so they can get a, a better understanding and a better perspective of what those players go through when they come over to the United States to try to play ball alongside with them. So I have no doubt that the Blue Jays are going to find some like creative ways to make this camp interesting and unique and challenging. But I, I'm going to be very interested just to see how they actually do that because it is such a unique opportunity. Yeah, and even in the major leagues, like if spring training does take place here in Toronto, I'm starting to wonder, like, how are they going to make do with one diamond? You think about Dunedin, where they have, I don't know, six or seven or eight or nine diamonds. I mean, it's I can't even come up with a number off the top of my head. There are a lot of them. And that means that you have a lot of space for the minor league players, for the major league players, not to mention every second day your team is going to be traveling somewhere and that leaves the main field for the use of the players who went on that trip. Now, in this case, the Blue Jays are not going to be traveling to spring training games or summer camp games. They are going to be in Toronto or potentially Dunedin, but we're, we're expecting them to be in one place either way and potentially that would be rogers center so you've got two bullpen mounds in left field two bullpen mounds in right field you've got the field itself some indoor batting cages but then again this is covid and we're supposed to be social distancing i'm wondering like do they start reaching out to other fields across the city do they bus players out to you know some of these other baseball facilities to try to create a bit more space if even if they do get the approvals to play in Toronto which is their goal they are going to have to have some pretty good contingency plans in place for for what that looks like on a day-to-day basis when you have 30 pitchers potentially in one place and they all need to get work in i think they'll just have to structure the day a lot differently. So I don't expect they'll bring all 60 guys, however many it is, up to Toronto. You don't have to bring all of them there. Like you can kind of split it up and have your your major league camp and your quote unquote minor league camp, I guess you could call it at the the satellite uh, field in, in Buffalo. So, you know, of the players that they bring to the major league side in Toronto, I don't know if at the beginning of camp they would actually have everybody working all at once. You know, you would probably stagger it throughout the day and be like, all right, like at 8 a.m. on the four mounds, it is going to be Luciano, Panone, Pearson, and Ryu. And then at 10 a.m., it's going to be Barucky, Anderson, Bass, Woods Richardson, or whatever. Uh, and like, I think they'll just have to like stagger it throughout the day and make it a much longer day and not have the benefit of everybody in one place at one time working together until later in camp. Because, you know, early on, pitchers just need to get the work in. Yeah, no, that could be a good workaround, actually, if they do stagger it. And then just, I guess, stock up the coffee machine and the Red Bull fridge for Pete Walker because <laughs> yeah. you know, some of those coaches are going to be grinding, right? Like if you have an 8 a.m. bullpen session and you're going all the way until 8 p.m., I mean, spring training is long to begin with. And I guess these guys have had the chance to get a little bit of rest in, at least in theory. But that would be one way to work around it and to try to make the most of a pretty small space. I mean, it's it's just one field that's going to have to serve, even if it's not 60 players, it's at least probably 30 or 40 guys there needing work on a regular basis. 
Yeah, I promise it's going to be long days for the coaches, long days for the grounds crew, um, you know, long days for the the sports science and the you know rehab and the medical folks and and all that type of stuff. Just with how isolated and staggered everything's going to have to be. But you know, trying to play baseball during a global pandemic, this is uh, this is what's going to happen. When you look at who's on this roster. You know, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see if when the Blue Jays break camp with 30 names, if, you know, like a Thomas Hatch is involved there or, a, you know, a Julian Merriweather, you know, some of the like a, a Patrick Murphy, some of these players who have been like kind of on the cusp of the majors for a little bit, who have been on the 40 man roster um, and who this year likely would have gone to Buffalo and provided rotation depth from there. I'll be interested to see if those are the guys who are kind of coming north and if the Blue Jays are going to sort of program their their pitching as they begin the year with either piggybacking or like a six-man rotation or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, use more openers and things like that. Just how the Blue Jays are going to get creative to involve some of these arms we haven't seen at the big league level yet as they try to navigate their way through the opening weeks of the season. It's going to be super interesting. I think there's potential to to gain a bit of an edge here if they are willing to be creative because when you look at the Blue Jays bullpen, there's not a lot of certainty in that group. There's Ken Giles and then you have a lot of question marks in in my view. So you need to find some answers leading up to Giles in that bullpen. And there's no guarantee of who exactly it will be who steps up. But I think when you're looking at the group that includes Patrick Murphy, Thomas Hatch and Julian Merriweather, there's the potential for some of those guys actually to play up in relief. And Merriweather is someone who last summer were led to, led to believe that he was throwing up to 100 miles an hour and really making progress in his return from Tommy John surgery. And, and Hatch and and Murphy and, and others have shown promise too. So if I'm the Blue Jays, I'm looking at those guys as candidates to pitch for one or two innings. And ideally, of course, they would have been starting at double A AA or triple A, but that's just it's not going to happen. The minor league season was canceled. There's no possibility for that to happen. So instead, you could have them throwing sim games at Buffalo, I guess. That's one option. And you can keep them on their, you know, 100-pitch rotation. Or you can just embrace the chaos of this year. Say, maybe we go back to that next year. But in the meantime, they can help us win games in the major league level. Let's keep them up to, you know, 50 pitches so they're not losing all sense of, of stamina and endurance but they don't have to be throwing 100 pitches to be contributing to this major league team. Yeah, it would be great to see guys like that. And, you know, a Jordan Romano, another young hard thrower coming out of that bullpen, even a Joey Murray pitching out of the bullpen and kind of like a Yusmero Petit type of mold. Could you even see a situation, maybe not, you know, I, I think we'll see some teams do it. I don't know if the Blue Jays will, but a situation where you almost like just rethink how you approach pitching and it's all right today it's going to be Ryu for four innings so then Pearson for three you know and and tomorrow uh maybe Merriweather's going to come in he's going to pitch the first inning and then we're going to go three innings of Hatch and then three innings of Baraki like could you see something like that playing out I can in a lot of cases on the days that Tanner Roark Ryu Shoemaker those three I'm not going to include Anderson in this group but I think for at least those three pitchers with their kind of veteran experience, I do not expect Charlie Montoyo to go to them and say, hey, you know, we're going to have you come in after an opener or we're going to have you piggyback with someone. You're only going four innings. I expect the Jays will handle those three starters in a more traditional way. But for the other spots, and I would say, so this is Anderson and then Thornton was the front runner for that fifth spot. Maybe Yamaguchi's in that mix or Anthony Kay. 
someone will be starting games. And I think for that number four and five spot in the rotation, I don't think you have to be uh, married to a five-inning approach or a traditional starting pitcher approach. I think that you can do openers in that situation. And if that fifth pitcher in the rotation only gives you four innings, I think that's fine. I think that is the place to be creative. And honestly, like I think this is probably easier said than done. I like the idea of trying to do that with Roark and Shoemaker and Ryu. I don't know, you know, from uh, persuading those guys and getting buy-in from those guys, that's probably a tricky thing to do, me speculating there, but I'd be open to, to that idea if the players were. What we don't know right now is kind of what pitch counts certain guys are going to be on for that first week of the season. And then, you know, what situations might arise where it's, hey, look, Ryu's going into this start with like, you know, 75 to 80 pitches. We don't want him to go further than that because it's not fully stretched out. But then it's like, oh, wait, he's got a no hitter through 74 pitches <laughs> and and how the Blue Jays would approach that. Um, you know, it, there might be some situations where they have to piggyback somebody behind a, uh, you know, a Roark or, or what have you, one of those established starters because they're just not stretched out in time. And then every pitcher is going to be different because certain guys guys can get ready for a season quicker than others I mean the one thing like I kind of feel confident saying about the first week of the season the first two weeks of the season you're probably not going to see too many pitch counts up over 100 I just don't see how a pitcher could get stretched out to that level as quickly as they will need to to be able to throw that much on July 24th or 25th so it's going to be like this interesting balance Ben of wanting to get enough work for certain guys having a game that you need to win because it's a 60 game season and every game takes on that much more importance wanting to get some development time for some of these younger guys that we mentioned like you know like a hatch like a merriweather and a murphy and some of those players who you want to get exposure to to game environments and you want to get in and also what your just strategy is to handling your pitching staff in terms of how you deploy guys like there are going to be like a lot of moving pieces to that jigsaw puzzle yeah i'm sure the conversations that montoyo and pete walker have are, are going to be pretty interesting and ross atkins of course will be in that in that room as well as the blue jays are, are making these plans but you kind of have to start making them now because if you want ryu to be stretched to 100 pitches for opening day then that's going to impact exactly how his progression looks for the next three weeks you have to know at this point what your goal is and if you don't need your guys to be stretched out to 100 pitches then that's going to inform things as well. So they have to have this plan now, and they also are going to have to adapt on the fly in a lot of cases. And I think that no-hit bid example is a perfect one. I mean, you think about Pearson. If he's pitching on the you know fifth day of the season or 10th day, whenever it is, I think there's a pretty good chance that he holds whoever it is he's facing hitless for a few innings and is up against what the Blue Jays had had expected for him pitch count wise. And I think they pull him in that situation. I mean, unless he's through seven on 65 pitches, like I think they're pulling him, but it, it will raise some really interesting and difficult decisions for the Jays staff. It's funny you bring that up, Ben, because like we wrote about this at the beginning of the stoppage and play here. I guess play never really started the beginning of the postponement of the season. Like when we went back and called people about the 94 strike and trying to restart that season, like one of the stories that we had in that piece was Bob Boone, who was the um, manager of the Kansas City Royals at the time, who had to like pull Kevin Apier in a no hitter on opening day 
uh, and he got like mercilessly booed by all the fans at Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City in his first mound visit as, as Royals manager. And it was like such a weird scene. It was so cool getting that, that story from him. And like, because it was a similar situation, like abbreviated lead up to the season, abbreviated spring. And he, you know, had a guy out there who would like far exceed his pitch count with a no hitter and he had to go take him out. So I imagine we're going to see those scenarios. Who do you think is kind of the deepest cut in this player pool who we could see in the majors this year like where is kind of the line i could see like a joey murray pitching in the majors this year even though he's only been up to double a but he's advanced came out of college like he's a guy that you could throw into a bullpen you know i think santiago espinal is an obvious one who i think is actually perfect for that taxi squad because he plays so many different positions and you could just like throw him in in a pinch and he's also kind of like mid-20s and his development's pretty well rounded at this point but is there kind of like a, a deep cut for from this roster that you think could play a, a role this season? You know, it would be fun. I think the most intriguing would be Kirk or Manoa or Groshans. I'm not really expecting that. I, you know, I think those guys are there for development purposes. Austin Martin, when he signs, I think it'll be the same thing. I wouldn't expect those guys to play. I guess when you're looking at the group of pitchers that includes Merriweather, Hatch, Murphy, I think those guys absolutely could be counted on, even, you know, should be counted on to contribute at some point this season, because there will be attrition even in the course of a two-month season. And you outlined this the other day when we were doing the trivia show, uh, Sportsnet IQ. I thought you made a good case that Manoa could. I mean, if everything was falling apart for the Blue Jays pitching staff and Manoa was throwing well and they needed someone for the late innings, he, he can throw really hard. You, you throw him up there and see what happens, but that's probably stretching it. Yeah, it is like a very low percentage situation in terms of like likelihood. But let's just say the Blue Jays get deep into the season. Uh, there's not much time left and they're like in a real position to qualify for the playoffs. Either they're in a playoff spot and trying to fight off somebody on their heels or they are like only a, you know, a game back or something and have a real, real opportunity to get in there. And, you know, these five pitchers are hurt and these pitchers are tired and overworked and these pitchers have COVID and they need someone who can pitch and like not someone in the vein of Edwin Jackson or Clayton Richard, but like someone who can make a difference and somebody who could put them over the top. And yeah, I could see Alec Manoa being that guy because, you know, he's like, he's a college grad. He developed quite a bit through college and he has two big league ready pitches, you know, and in, in a high nineties fastball and a wipeout slider. And he's a competitor and the league won't have seen him. I mean, you could get to a point where you said, okay, we're going to sacrifice a bit of his development and we're going to put him in a really precarious position in terms of like making your MLB debut in a spot where everything is on the line. And if it doesn't go well, it's going to be that much more dispiriting than, um, you know, in any MLB debut, which would come with a, obviously a whole bunch of pressure and, and anxiety. And we would do it in service of this pretty rare opportunity to reach the postseason and compete for a championship. So like that's one scenario I could see, but it is like it's a 1% outcome. Like it is extremely unlikely that comes to bear. Yeah, agreed. And one factor that Jays always watch when it comes to their prospects is their 40-man clocks. And do they want to basically start that 40-man clock early if they have the option of waiting? Usually the Blue Jays do prefer to wait because 
the longer it is that you add someone to the 40-man, the more flexibility you have in the meantime. So, for example, the Blue Jays don't have Nate Pearson on their 40-man roster right now. They have yet to add him. That allows them, with that extra spot that they are not using on Nate Pearson, they make a claim on Bravik Valera. Or they you know, have a spot for Forrest Wall to protect him from the Rule 5 pick. That 40-man roster management is something that the Blue Jays and other teams are, are conscious of. And if you bring on Manoa, you're starting his 40-man clock. Therefore, you also have to option him to the minors. You're starting his option clock. Teams are, are so... They're so cautious. They try to preserve every option that they have. They try to prolong these decisions if they have have an option. So I do think that 40-man roster management here is one aspect of, of the promotions that we should at least keep in the back of our minds. The worst thing you can do, like when you're, um, you know, like talking to like an MLB executive or like asking them about something is to play the hypothetical game because they hate it and they never respond well to it. <laughs> they just say, I don't know. It depends. Like they'll look at you like you're a moron. But let me just throw one hypothetical at you, Ben. Danny Jansen, um, unfortunately, blows out his knee. It sucks and it's really dispiriting, but it happened. Reese McGuire takes a foul tip off the mask. He's in the concussion protocol and he hasn't cleared those tests yet, so he can't come back. And uh, at the minor league camp, you know, Riley Adams actually uh, went to get his haircut and got COVID, uh, unfortunately. So he's uh, on the COVID list. Caleb Joseph is your starting catcher in the big leagues, but you need a second one. And the only catcher left on the 60-man player pool is Alejandro Kirk. Is he coming to the majors or are you like scouring indie ball to find somebody who you can strap a chest protector on and put in your dugout? Man, that is I like that hypothetical. Um, I have no aversion to hypotheticals. unlike your your GMs and pitching coaches that you're talking to. I think when it comes to Alejandro Kirk, I could see it happening like he would have to be performing well. And the Blue Jays, you know, this raises the question of how do the Blue Jays assess the performances of the players in that pool at Buffalo because they don't have minor league stats to go off of and they don't necessarily have scouting reports from traditional games because there are not going to be traditional games played. So you don't have objective data in the way that we're used to seeing it. We don't have subjective data. So I think what that means is they're going to have to come up with different metrics. So is it tracking his exit velo and batting practice? Is it tracking his his swing and miss rate in games, even intra-squad games, I think they will come up with ways to assess their own players internally. And if Kirk is doing well, let's say he's not swinging and missing in your intra-squad games, let's say his exit velo numbers are off the charts, let's say he's healthy, and you had that situation that you just outlined, then yes, I could see him in the majors. So again, a long shot, but this is a guy who has performed. I don't think it's crazy that he could hold up his end of the bargain and be performing well in the Jays player pool in Buffalo. It just would require a few injuries on the Jays depth chart as far as catching. It would be such an interesting scenario if it did happen. And I like, I bet the Blue Jays would first like call up, you know, indie ball teams or try to, you know, where's pitch Patrick Cantwell playing this year or something like that and go try to find somebody like that who could step in. But it's not unreasonable to, you know, wonder if that scenario could arise with only five catchers on on the 60-man player pool. Blue Jays might be backed into a spot where it's like, hey, we just, we need a catcher. 
and it's going to be Kirk. And he's going to come up and it's unideal. And we're, we're not going to love the 40 man move that we have to make. And we're not going to love what it does to his development and all, all these sorts of things. But this is what's going to happen. And look, with no minor league season, as you mentioned, it's going to be like you made a great point. It's going to be that much harder to kind of assess where guys are at. You're not going to have game tape. Like you're not going to have watched Kirk call a game or handle a pitcher or, you know, take ABs against, you know, righties with, you know, tough sliders or, or some sort of hole that you've identified in his swing or some sort of adjustment you've identified that he needs to make. You won't have seen that play out in actual games. So like the actual evaluative process of understanding minor league players and where they're at and, and, you know, who's getting better, who's making the adjustments they need to, who's not working hard enough. It's going to be that much harder and it's going to be like that much harder for minor leaguers to show that they are better than where the league projects them to be right now. Like for a guy like Joey Murray to make like the strides he made last season it was because he was pitching in games and it's because he was showing like, Hey, my fastball plays like it's only 88 miles an hour, but it gets swings and misses and I can locate it and hitters don't know where it's going. And, and, you know, I can get weak contact and I can lead this organization in strikeouts. You know, there's those individuals who's, you know, as pitchers, like their, their stuff doesn't jump off the page. And, you know, it's not like that, you know, kind of elite swing and miss stuff, you know, when you just see it in a bullpen, but then you see it in a game and they get outs and, you know, as hitters, like maybe nothing jumps out to you about, you know, how they look in, in the batting cages or in BP, but then they get in games and they can grind out plate appearances and they can foul off tough pitches. And you actually see that competitiveness against a pitcher and and how their plate appearances impact the game. There's certain things you can only show like inside the lines in a competitive environment. And it's going to be that much harder for minor leaguers to really show organizations that they have made strides and made adjustments and gotten better. Yeah, exactly. And I think even within organizations, I mean, if you're trying to figure out which pitcher do you want to call up and you're looking for a reliever, let's say, let's go with a a veteran type reliever who's not likely to be on the major league roster. So let's say a Justin Miller is not on the major league roster. He's a guy with some big league time. The Blue Jays have to assess him against these up-and-coming prospects. And maybe the prospects are the guys who are lighting up the Rapsodo, who are lighting up the radar gun. Their objective numbers are better. The Blue Jays then will have to weigh that against a pitcher who has more experience, someone who's less likely to be intimidated in the spotlight, someone who's more likely to be able to keep hitters off balance and get some swings and misses, not because the pitch was so good, but just because the pitch was the right one for that point in the game or that point in the count. So I think that's one challenge. And then, you know, as we're talking about this, it makes me think about trades too, because usually you can see a player's numbers really easily. Scouts have access to all kinds of different games. In this season, if scouts are not permitted into the pools of other players, I mean, if those are closed off to media, which we expect, if they are closed off to other teams, it's going to be really hard for any of the other organizations around baseball to say, this is the guy we really want, this you know infielder who's making big strides with the Marlins or with the Diamondbacks. He's, he's made some big progression. We should target him in trade talks. Now it's going to be a closed loop, and teams are not going to have as much information about their rivals as they normally would. 
we've seen this trend over recent seasons and you know you're right this one's really going to accelerate it we're going away from you know the looks of scouts and just like seeing guys play towards more empirical objective data and that being what you know sells a team on like a Socrates burrito where they're like hey this guy's got you know tremendous bat speed and he's really fast on the base pass and he's got huge tools for some reason just kind of has trouble putting it together in games at the highest level you know, we're going to see more of that trend towards uh, that that's how players are evaluated rather than you know actually getting looks on guys you know like and we're also gonna without a minor league season like we're gonna miss out on a lot of those cool stories that pop up every year of like the late round pick who makes a tweak and puts himself on the map or like Joey Murray, like the pitcher who has an unconventional profile or unusual stuff, but finds a way to like get a lot of outs and dominate every level that he goes to, you know, like, cause we, we spend way too much time talking about top prospect lists, uh, you know, and this guy's the number X prospect in this team's system, or that guy's ranked this by baseball America. Like at the end of the day, it's human performance and it's, you know, either you can execute the pitch or you can't, you know, either you can hit, the pitch or you can't you know so just because like some guy in a golf shirt put your name on a list like that really doesn't mean anything like players need the opportunity to actually play and prove that they are better than people expect them to be like this is an extreme example but like mike trout wasn't the first overall pick in the draft you know he wasn't a number one overall prospect even as a as a minor leaguer you know, when he was 18, 19, 20, there were players that baseball people thought were better than him. Turns out he's the greatest player to ever live. So without minor league games being played, young athletes just aren't going to have that opportunity to change their narratives as much as they would when they are. And that's unfortunate. It definitely is. I mean, you, you think about all of the players who now are not going to have that opportunity, A, because the draft this year was only five rounds. So, you know, the idea of a late round pick surprising people is just basically an impossibility for anyone drafted in 2020 and even for for previous years players we don't know who that player is who would have burst onto the scene this year if they had the opportunity of playing a full minor league season instead there are a few prospects like the guys that we have talked about who are going to have the opportunity to be in this development pool and in this in this kind of satellite camp along with some some veteran players but most professional players, the Arelvis Martinez's of the world who are not on this taxi squad are going to have to develop in other ways. And according to what Mark Shapiro said on a conference call last week with the media, it really sounds like this is something that has been on the back burner uh, along with so much else for Major League Baseball. So there may be some sort of expanded Arizona Fall League. There may be some sort of instructional league in Florida but nobody knows exactly what that's going to look like right now. And in the meantime, the development for those prospects in a lot of cases is just stalled. And you think about how hard it's been to just get Major League Baseball started with all the health protocols and safety stipulations, everything that has to happen when you're trying to play ball during a pandemic. You'd have to do all that same stuff for that prospect league. You'd have to do all that same stuff for Arizona or Florida, wherever you're going to be playing this thing, which, by the way, you're going to play in Arizona or Florida, where like they can't find like charts that will contain the bars of on this graph because the numbers are so high. They're just running out of pixels. I just think it's going to be so hard to get those prospect leagues off the ground. I really hope they do. But you look at how difficult it's been to get MLB off the ground and we still yet might not get it off the ground. All of those considerations apply to trying to get a prospect league off the ground as well during fall when a second wave is expected. Yeah, it's tough. You know, you feel for those prospects, you feel for 
even just the minor league staff, whether it's broadcasters or groundskeepers or PA announcers. I mean, there's so many people who are part of making those games a reality every single year and so many fans who get to watch it and it's you know it seems like we're going to get major league baseball or at least they're going to try to have some sort of major league baseball season but you know i I like minor league baseball a lot i don't necessarily watch a ton of it anymore because we're so focused on the major leagues but it's a shame to see that season canceled even though it's not a surprise that this day arrived yeah it's a bummer all the way around really but yeah you're right it's also not it's not a surprise at all when you consider that over the last several months, you know, clubs have been furloughing coaches and player development staff, and they've been, you know, dragging their feet over like committing to pay stipends to minor leaguers. They've been releasing large amounts of minor leaguers. Like clubs are doing all kinds of things that indicate to us there wasn't going to be a minor league season. It was almost kind of bizarre that there hadn't been an announcement until now. Two more topics that let's just touch on quickly as we wrap up here Austin Martin and Nate Pearson. Let's start with Austin Martin, who has not yet signed, and I'm sure that there is a little bit of worry among the Blue Jays fan base because that has not happened and because like constant dread and worry is kind of part and parcel of Toronto sports fandom. But I just don't think that anybody needs to be as worried about it as they perhaps are. And I wonder if... Maybe Blue Jays fans aren't as accustomed to the Boris process just because the club hasn't signed Boris clients for so long, hasn't drafted them for so long. This is kind of how it goes. Things drag out. If you look back at Anthony Rendon coming out of the draft, Garrett Cole coming out of the draft, those are both guys who are like top of the draft dudes who didn't sign their bonuses until, you know, 45 seconds before the deadline or something crazy. Scott Boris just likes to play these things out. He likes to let other players in the draft sign and set the market, put pressure on the club to go above wherever they may be willing to go in order to get his client the biggest bonus possible. We've seen it happen before. I think the incentives are too great on both sides to get a deal done to not get a deal done. I think Austin Martin is going to sign. And I think having Spencer Torkelson sign with the Tigers is probably going to, if anything, help the process along just because now like the high end of the market is set. So both sides can negotiate off that number and and arrive at a number that makes sense for them. Yeah, I, I really don't think there's a ton of reason for Jays fans to be worried here for a lot of the reasons that you outlined. I mean, you look at Boris and if anyone in Major League Baseball is comfortable waiting it's him. I mean, we've seen him sign Bryce Harper to what at the time was the largest contract in baseball history. And that deal happened in February or was it March? It was spring training either way. I mean, it was late, late into the spring. Jake Arrieta, same thing. Prince Fielder back in the day, same thing. He's really the the agent who pushed the offseason back into January. He always seemed to have a client who was waiting to sign until after the holidays. And this is dating back like to when I was at MLB Trade Rumors. I think Matt Holiday signed after the holidays. And, and at that point, the winter meetings were really where most deals were expected to go down. So Boris does not mind waiting. And in the case of the Blue Jays, you know, if you're Ross Atkins right now, you're probably mostly focused on the logistics of what we talked about for the first part of the podcast. I mean, that is such a huge undertaking. There's so many logistics involved in that it's going to take a lot of work on the part of Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins and a lot of their staff to try to make this process 
move along and then make it go as smoothly as possible to set these players up to play a season in about three weeks time. So I think it makes sense that his energy would largely be there. And you even look at the public comments where Mark Shapiro said on Tim and Sid at the end of last month, quote, I'm optimistic that we'll sign Austin Martin. I'm incredibly excited that he fell to us. These are the kind of comments that Ross Atkins has made as well. And to me, that they are the comments made of someone who fully expects to get a deal done. So I don't know when it will happen, but the Blue Jays have already carved out about 300K extra that they can direct toward Martin. I expect he'll take it, and that'll be a big day for the organization, but I don't think Jays fans should really be worried at all about not having him sign with the Jays. I will be extremely surprised if Austin Martin doesn't sign before the August 1st deadline. It might not be too much time left on the clock. But uh, I I think that he will sign uh, before the August 1st deadline. Um, The other thing, you mentioned Ross Atkins not spending a lot of time thinking about Austin Martin right now. The other thing that I promise you Ross Atkins and the Blue Jays front office aren't spending their entire days thinking about is Nate Pearson's service time. And I know that it's like all that, you know, we are kind of talking about in the the Blue Jays sphere right now. Um, And I understand why, you know, it's kind of the it's the same thing, right? It's the same kind of like, you know, Toronto sports fan worry and Toronto sports fan like fear mongering. But like, you know, this decision over whether or not Nate Pearson is going to break camp with the club isn't going to come for weeks. And just as you know, we mentioned that the MLB executives don't like dealing in hypotheticals, well, that you know, what you do with Nate Pearson at the end of camp right now is a hypothetical. They're going to wait. You know, I promise you that the Blue Jays have not settled on a 30-man roster for the beginning of the season yet. They don't even know what their schedule is. So they are going to wait to see how health and performance plays out over camp. And then when it comes time to set a roster, they're going to take all the information that they've gathered over those three weeks and they are going to balance what's best for the team today, uh, what's best for the team in the future and what's best for the player and come to a decision. But, uh, you know, I just I don't think that the Blue Jays are spending any energy on that decision right now. So in turn, like, I don't think the fans need to spend any energy in worrying about that scenario uh, because that decision is so many weeks away. I agree. And that's my sense from asking around a little bit. I don't think the Blue Jays are thinking about this right now. Well, that will change in a couple of weeks. They will have to really determine a plan here for what happens with with Nate Pearson as they move ahead. And it will be a really interesting decision. You know, I think that when you look at it from the lens of a video game, I think it's pretty obvious what you do. You keep them down for seven to 10 days, you get an extra year of control because that's just a win. When you think about one start or, you know, two starts potentially compared to a full year, you'd rather have the year. Now, that is service time manipulation. If you believe he's ready and you're holding him down, and you are trying to game the system and get an extra year, absolutely a service time manipulation. Now, with that being said, that is in the collective bargaining agreement. The players know it's in there. The players signed off an agreement knowing that it was in there. So in a sense, there is an expectation that that rule is there for teams to exploit it. Even as teams file grievances, such as the one that uh, Chris Bryant filed against the Cubs, the Cubs still got away with it and the Cubs still were able to get that extra year out of Bryant. So I think that's the video game way you play it. In reality, when you have a potential PR pushback from fans, when you have the potential of uh, even players within the clubhouse, you know, kind of 
bristling at that decision when you have Pearson himself and that relationship to manage over the course of the long term, I don't think it's quite that simple. And so I agree with you. I think this decision gets played out very slowly. And I think that the Blue Jays do wait because what if Pearson rolls his ankle on the second to last day of spring training? Or what if he pulls a hamstring? Or, you know, there are lots of ways that you might not break camp with Nate Pearson for reasons that don't have to do with service time manipulation. And you don't want to box yourself in or or make promises to him or to anybody else on July the 1st or 2nd when that's really just too early to be making that kind of call. So I think they waited out. And I tend to think that if Pearson is healthy, he breaks camp with the team. I don't know where you land on that one, Arden. But to me, I think if he's healthy, it's just so hard to make a developmental case that he would be better off away from the major league team. I think his development would be best served in the majors. And and so I do think common sense prevails there. But I'm not fully assured that that will be the case. Yeah, I'm getting flashbacks to like the winter and spring of uh, 2018, 2019, when it was every single radio interview, every TV hit, every Blue Jays fans you interacted with. It was, what about Vlad? And is he going to make the team? And why are they holding him down? And it's all about service time. And lo and behold, uh, he didn't turn an ankle, as you said, uh, but he had a lat issue or like an oblique issue. And uh, none of it ended up mattering. Right. It was the whole conversation was moot uh, because he got hurt. And here we are like 15 months later and we've learned nothing nothing we're just doing it all over again like can we just go back and play the tape but um like i like i agree with you you know like my opinion is that if nate pearson gets through uh camp healthy and if he is performing and if all of you know the readings that they have on you know his, his arm and where he's at and his health and his durability and everything is constant and steady and where you need it to be I believe Nate Pearson will bring camp with the Blue Jays. I think it would be the best thing for the club because you're going to need an excess of pitchers early in the season anyway. And with Pearson on the club, you're putting your most competitive roster on the field and giving yourself the best chance of winning. That way, you, as you mentioned, you keep Pearson happy and you keep the clubhouse happy and you build a harmonious relationship going forward. I think it's the best thing for the player because he will accomplish much more developmentally pitching in major league games than he would throwing sim games in Buffalo. You know, like there really isn't a developmental case for not having him exposed to major league competition at this point. And that developmental benefit also makes it the best thing for the club in the long term, not just the short term. And whether or not it's the best thing for the club from like an asset management standpoint, like as you said, if you're making this decision in a vacuum, like obviously you would trade one start during a shortened season when you might not be that competitive in exchange for an entire year of cost-controlled starts in 2027 or whatever it is, it might be a completely moot point in like 18 months anyway when there's a new CBA that's negotiated. Service time rules could look very different in 2022 or 2023 than they do today. We don't know that they will. And obviously you, you have to play to the rules that are in place now, but if you really gain this thing out, like I think the decision's fairly obvious and, and you put him on the team. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. And one other variable to keep an eye on in this with Pearson is the overall state of Major League Baseball and how things look. Because there is almost a doomsday scenario for the Jays from a pure asset management standpoint 
there's this doomsday scenario that happens where they start the season with Pearson and after 20 games, the whole thing goes up in smoke because COVID is not allowing anyone to play a season. And then you've gotten three starts of Pearson and burned a full year of service. So, I mean, I don't think that you manage with that expectation, but it's probably something they keep in the back of their mind. We'll see how it unfolds. I mean, I think if Pearson shows up in spring, which we expect him to and look really good. If he can look like the guy who dominated in the minor leagues last year and he's throwing over 100, which he has been doing in his own private development in Florida, then I do think he breaks camp with the team. And that'll be a lot of fun to watch. I mean, at some point this year, he's going to be up and he's going to be, in my opinion, the most exciting pitcher on this team to watch. If there's one guy that I would trust to make the most of like a three month just down period where there's no games being played and the world is quarantined, it's Nate Pearson. Like I, I believe that every day he woke up and found a, a way to get better because he I mean, he was doing that during off seasons anyway. I mean, he has been kind of setting the pace for the franchise and for its young players in terms of how to better yourself and how to improve and how to like really invest and buy into your own development. I mean, that is why uh, if the regular season had played out as normal, I mean, the Blue Jays weren't going to put an innings limit on him and they weren't going to give him any kind of restriction as far as you're going to throw five innings this start and two innings that start and then five innings this start, two innings that start. They were just going to let him go because... They trusted him and they trusted that he is incredibly invested in himself and, you know, his own performance and his own health and durability. And he knows that like a healthy Nate Pearson is the best Nate Pearson. So if something is, you know, grabbing at his oblique or if there's a little hip issue or a little knee thing, it's not something that he's just going to not tell anybody about. Like he's going to communicate with with the team and, and find a way to chart the best course forward. I mean, he's not going to put himself at risk and go and, and pitch through injuries and, and make them worse. So, you know, I think that the Nate Pearson that we see in this little three-week training camp is going to probably be even better than the Nate Pearson that we saw during spring training back in February and March. The unfortunate thing is we're just probably not going to see him in games <laughs> because there's no games, no spring training, summer camp schedule. All that you get are you can have three exhibition games at the end of your camp, but the Blue Jays don't even really know where their camp's going to be and what their teams are going to be in the area. Um, the one thing they could do is play like three exhibition games against whatever team they open the season against. We expect that to be the Tampa Bay Rays in Tampa, in St. Petersburg. But until then, we're not going to see Nate Pearson pitch, and that is too bad. Yeah, it's always fun to watch Pearson pitch. I agree. He's probably better than than what we saw him at in spring training. He's someone who's probably uniquely motivated and capable when it comes to taking advantage of that downtime. And so it, it will be fun to see what he can do. And, you know, in, in some ways, this could be a prime season for Nate Pearson. It, you know, when it comes to his velocity, when it comes to the kind of swinging, swinging strikes that he can generate... Obviously, he'll become more of a polished pitcher and develop more of that know-how, that savvy over time. But from a pure stuff standpoint, a lot of these guys, you know, they get to the majors 21, 22, 23. That's when their velocity is at its peak. I'm not sure that Nate Pearson is going to be throwing 100 miles an hour when he's 28 years old, but he can do it now. And, you know, I think that that makes him such an interesting pitcher to watch. If anyone on this team is is going to be an ace. I do think it's Ryu in the short term, and I think Ryu is their best pitcher right now. But when you're going down that list of guys who could be electrifying on a certain night or who could really be that difference-making starting pitcher, Nate Pearson is a name you arrive at pretty quickly. 
Getting close, man. We're getting close. About three weeks to go before uh, we, fingers crossed, we hope, have a baseball season and some actual like pitches and hits and home runs and shutouts and complete games and four for four nights uh, and all that kind of good stuff to uh, to talk about rather than all of these hypotheticals that we've been talking about for uh, months on end. He's Ben Nicholson Smith. He's on Twitter at B Nicholson Smith. I'm Arda Zwelling. Uh, our producer is Christian Ryan. He's on Twitter at Christian Ryan NS. Thanks to him as always. And thanks to all of you for listening. Talk to you next week on at the letters.